Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a recording of a live event held via Zoom during the COVID-19 crisis. It is a conversation between former Victorian Premier Steve Brax and Bernard Collary, a barrister, lawyer, former politician, and now author of the new book, Oil Under Troubled Water, Australia's Timor Sea Intrigue. A warning, as this is a live internet recording, there has been an impact on the sound quality of the episode. To introduce Steve Brax, here is your host, Readings Head of Programming and Events, Chris Gordon. It gives me great pleasure at the moment to introduce you to Steve Brax, who everybody probably knows. Steve, can you give everybody away? So we know that Steve was the Premier of Victoria from 1999 to 2007 and I raise a glass to everything that he did and I'm sure everyone here in this audience does as well. Thank you. He is a man that has been incredibly committed to the, the work that's been happening over there in Timor. He has kept up constant contact and he's worked pro rata. He's worked when he was in the government and he's worked pro rata and it's such a pleasure to have him tonight talking to the author of this incredible investigative book. Steve Brax, over to you. Uh, well, thanks very much, Chris. And Bernard, it's great to see you on. I suspected that ASIS or ASIO are outside your house in Canberra. Who knows? I think that um, And it's great to see so many people have tuned in this evening as well. It's sort of hard in this time of coronavirus um, to focus on anything else. Our lives have been disrupted in so many ways. Yet the wheels of our justice system and our intelligence agencies continue to turn. The lives of Bernard Cleary and the ASIS agent known only as Witness K were dramatically disrupted in December 2013 when the home of Witness K and Bernard's law chambers, both in Canberra, were raided by ASIO and the Australian Federal Police. The raids occurred on the eve of the hearing of the Permanent Court of Arbitration at The Hague in the Netherlands. The arbitration was initiated by Timor-Leste, which was seeking to have a Timor Sea Maritime Boundary Treaty negotiated with Australia in 2004, known as CMATS. They were trying to get it declared void because Australia acted in bad faith by bugging the room used by the Timorese. The use of state-of-the-art spycraft by Australia against the new emerging nation of Timor-Leste was an unconscionable betrayal. The Timorese considered Australia a friend. Many Timorese believed Australia owned Timor a debt of honour. When Australian, British and Dutch troops invaded neutral Portuguese Timor in 1942 during World War II, the Japanese soon followed. The Australian troops were kept alive by Timorese guides and villagers before they were evacuated a year later. 50,000 Timorese died in the course of the war, a war Australia helped bring to their doorstep. We will never forget you, we said, but we went about forgetting them. Bernard knows that story, uh, this story all too well. In his riveting book, he recounts how he first heard about Timor-Leste in his final years as a law student at Sydney University when he received some specialised training from an Australian intelligence agency. And one of the trainers spoke passionately about the Timorese people. Yet despite this debt of honour, the Australian government betrayed the Timorese people over and over again. 
1975, the Whitlam Labor government encouraged Indonesia to invade what was then Portuguese Timor. In 1978, the Federal Liberal Coalition government ignored credible reports of deliberate mass starvation and ongoing atrocities and became the first and only Western government to formally recognise Indonesia's sovereignty in East Timor. And why? Because it was an inevitable consequence of negotiating a maritime boundary with Indonesia between Australia and East Timor. In 1989, the Hawke Labor government signed the Timor Gap Treaty that gave Australia rights to oil and gas on the Timor side of the medium line. Infamously, signing the treaty in a jet over the Timor Sea as Foreign Ministers Gareth Evans and Elie Altas drank champagne for the cabinets. In 1999, the Howard government supported autonomy with Indonesia, not independence, but autonomy. Foreign Minister Alexander Downer initially argued against sending in peacekeepers. And then, as Bernard describes in fascinating detail, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs, led with enthusiasm by Minister Downer, succeeded in manipulating the UN administration into a series of agreements and treaties that denied the Timorese their rights under international law to a median line boundary in the Timor Sea. One of the most intriguing aspects of Bernard's book is his forensic examination of how DFAT and Minister Downer, to use Bernard's words, connived to hide from the United Nations and the Timorese the presence of massive quantities of helium gas produced as a byproduct of processing the Bayuundan gas in Darwin. Then, as if we had not exploited our power advantage enough, as if we had not betrayed the Timorese enough, in 2004, ASIS, that was under the jurisdiction of Minister Downer, secreted listening devices in the room being used by the Timorese during complex negotiation over, over rights to billions of dollars of oil and gas in the Timor Sea. It would have been so obvious to anyone visiting Dili in 2004 that the Timorese were struggling to provide basic, basic education and health services. The power went out numerous times a day. Water was undrinkable, poverty endemic. Remember also that in 2004, that Mabugni occurred, terrorism group Jamar Ismailia in Indonesia was a serious threat to Australia's national security. The Bali bombings were happening. It's no wonder that some, if not all, of the ASIS officers directed to install listening devices in the Cabinet Room in Dili would have been shocked and appalled at what they were being asked to do. One of the many problems Bernard's book illustrates is that our intelligence agencies are a law unto themselves. The ministers with responsibility for intelligence agencies currently, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, Attorney General Christian Porter, have unfettered power. There is no parliamentary oversight of intelligence operations like there is in the US, in Canada and the UK. I wholeheartedly endorse Bernard's conclusion that the Timor-Leste Timor story illustrates a wide malaise in Australian democracy. Malaise. The head of the, Victoria, the various intelligence organisations rotate around the top jobs. Hence, David Irvine, the head of ASIS at the time of the 2004 banging, 
was head of ASIO at the time of Canberra raids on Bernard and Witness Cay in 2013. How convenient. That was when the Howard government used international, used national security laws introduced to combat terrorism to seize legally privileged documents from Bernard's, Bernard Cleary's law chambers. That was a breach of diplomatic immunity and lawyer-client privilege. When Australia refused requests to return the documents, Timor-Leste successfully took action against Australia in the General Division of the International Court of Justice. In April 2016, Timor-Leste became the first nation to invoke the compulsory conciliation provisions of the United Nations Conventions on the Law of the Sea. Australia lost a preliminary argument that the Commission had no jurisdiction to conciliate the Timor Sea dispute. In the process of conciliation, Australia succeeded in getting Timor-Leste to withdraw from the spying arbitration proceedings and in return finally committed to negotiate a permanent maritime boundary. In August last year, Scott Morrison became the first Prime Minister to visit Timor-Leste in a decade. He was there to join the celebrations marking the 20th anniversary of the historic vote for independence from Indonesia. He was also there to finally sign a median line-based Timor Sea Treaty. I was at the ceremony with my friend and long-time Timor champion, Harold Mitchell, who's online. Welcome, Harold. It was surreal, sitting there in a sweltering heat, watching the Australian Prime Minister and officials gathered in the forecourt of the very, very building Australia bugged 14 years earlier. I've got no doubt that if not for the revelation of the illegal espionage operation, Australia would not have agreed to median line boundary in the Timor Sea. But that treaty, in part, was yet another betrayal of the Timorese people. There was no provision for repatriation for Timor-Leste to be paid back the billions Australia had banked from oil and gas fields we now acknowledge are in Timorese waters. As Bernard concludes in Oil Under Troubled Water, there must be exemplary process of recognition of past wrongs affecting East Timor, including restitution. He also argues for a clean-out of public servants who have dealt with the Timor issue over the years. I also endorse Bernard's call for ASIS to have independent statutory status and to be subject to appropriate cabinet and parliamentary scrutiny. Before I finish and hand over the Zoom microphone to Bernard, I'd like to thank him on behalf of all of us for his bravery and his strong moral compass. The prosecution of he and Witness K is political. The only good thing to come out of it may be that Downer and Howard are called to account for their actions leading to the despicable Dilly spying operation. I have no doubt if the proceedings start, Janana Guzmao will have a very interesting story to tell if he is called to the stand. Thank you. Congratulations, Bernd, on this fantastic book. Well, thanks, Steve. Um, uh, Christine, you're the MC, I guess, but I just... I'll just move in. Uh, Steve, of course... Move right on in. We've been friends for so many years. It was Steve that I that we turned to to uh, use his own uh, purse as uh, Premier to memorialise the uh, Ballybow House where our Australian, British and New Zealand uh, newsmen were, were murdered 
way back in 75. So, Steve, you've been a champion yourself. Um, look, uh, I, I can't believe how life goes in such a circle at times. I've taken a bit of liberty revealing the training I received from a Z-Force commando who was then an intelligence officer. Um, I found the story of how the Timorese alone as a population, a Christianised, largely Christianised population, helped our young soldiers. The first thing when they made contact again with Australia, of course, Australia didn't, Australia thought it had a lost army and it took them three months to build a improvised radio and they radioed into Melbourne and the military headquarters in Melbourne thought it was the Japanese playing tricks and then they thought, that, well, we'll ask who kicked the who kicked the last goal in the AFL Grand Final in 1939, and back came the immediate reply. And, of course, and the first thing the soldiers asked for was more boots and more ammunition. And it, it, you've seen it all, that terrain, to be in bare feet, to be uh, suffering such privations but, and without the help of the locals, uh, many men of those young men would have would never have survived. So uh, I was struck by that Z Force commando telling me that it was only twenty years after the war, and uh, or so, and uh, you know move on many many years, a whole lifetime, and um, I'm just you know I've done all these terrible murder trials and that I was just gobsmacked when Witness K gave me an example of the conduct he and others were concerned about. I, I just, I've heard so many things as a criminal lawyer, as a civil lawyer, distressing things. I just went still. I try not to portray emotion. It's old training. I hadn't expected it at all. It was a, just an incredible moment in my life to hear what we'd done. Of course, I was present, Steve, I think you were too, when John Howard shook uh, Murray Alcateri's hand and uh, said that we've now got a new relationship, we're going to act in good faith, and they were the written words. And, of course, I was advising uh, Chinana, the leadership of the CNRT at the time, and, you know, it looked like a new page in relationships. It's just... So, you know, I sort of shuffled Kay out of the office reasonably quickly because uh, I, I, I needed to sit and think. I, I needed to think, wow, this is my country. We owe these people so much. And, of course, Steve, you've been there. There's barely a village you go to uh, when there's not an infant burial. and It's a highly emotive place for us Australians to be at. And... That might explain why um, I, I, I did take a, a long time to decide what to do and to consult Witness K, but um, we're Australians and those who perpetrated this were not Australians. I, I, I don't believe they belong with us. They aren't part of us and they have to give account. I mean, there's that, that, that moral compass you mentioned, that's... What I feel, it's not a, I mean, of all persons I've ever met in my life, the man with the least vengeance in his system is Chanana, as you know. You're very close to him too, Steve. 
Um, and for a man to have gone through what he went through in the jungles and in jail and, and the rest, the sufferings for he and his family, um, not to have a streak of mean vengeance in him, I, I am so amazed at how calmly um, that Shanana greeted the news of this, this treachery. And treachery it was because Steve, um, it's a William Dean and, and uh, Admiral Chris Barry came up at one stage to meet with Chinana. I was his advisor at the time, Chinana's. And we, we wanted to develop a defence and intelligence relationship, which I can't go into. So there I am with the blessings of my law partners who gave me long periods of leave, living up there and doing what I thought was a mutual task of bettering my country and their country, the Timorese country. And to think that we were all working on that, uh, Bill Dean, Chris Barry, myself, Chinana, on a relationship, you too, Stephen, and many, many other Australians in the religious orders, NGOs, and in the armed forces. To think that we would treacherously sell out on the values that we were working for by, um, now I'm not allowed to say anything, by doing the, the, what I'm not allowed to talk about, uh, under the National Security Terrorist Orders, um, uh, you know, uh, was was a great ethical strain. And just to be a lawyer for a moment, you do get ethical challenges. They come often without notice. Um, I can't think of a bigger ethical challenge that came to me. Um, Steve, you would have had him as Premier, no doubt, um, than uh, for this decent veteran, patriotic, good man who'd served his country in various roles, dangerous roles, um, to come to my office, leave my office and, and to leave me sitting there dumbfounded at what my own countrymen can do. It was, uh, it was a defining moment and I was um, never in, I didn't keep a diary. Some old training. Uh, it took me years to get a credit card. I won't go into that. But uh, I didn't keep a diary particularly uh, well. I never went into the field there with the intention of writing a book. But uh, I started to try and think, uh, where, ha where have we gone wrong as a country? Where when I grew up, we were building a nation. We learned history and social studies then and we were going to dam every river, et cetera, et cetera. We were going to master science and solve poverty and, and health problems and eradicate diphtheria and polio and we did a lot of those things. Um, but what we didn't do, somehow, um, we, we lost the plot. We, we decided you could be right at the top and cheat. And how did that happen? And then so that's where I started to try and work out where it all went wrong. And then I found, of course, I learned about the helium and I learned about just this mammoth, audacious plot to uh, deal badly with these uh, poverty-stricken uh, people. Um, and, and uh, you know, the first 
period I was in Timor, I was uplifted by our, by our armed forces. I, we had the SAS guarding us. Uh, they were, in fact, they were so, their field craft was so brilliant and their, their manner and their service, their attention to detail and their security that it calmed Chanana, it calmed him. It was, he, he found he was with fellow travellers and so, and he had an Australian wife and Australian advisors, and all the settings were there for us to make the Timorese into our abiding friends, our abiding people who would, who would see us as liberators and decent people. But long before Kay came to my office, the relationship had soured. They knew they'd been dudded. They knew they'd been dudded. They didn't know how. So really all I've done, Steve, is to provide the opening and Kay provided the opening for a lot of um, reflection and study and reflection by the Timorese themselves, as you know, you've been advising them. And still, even though they were uh, exposed, they still went about the conciliation without putting their cards on the table about what they'd done about the helium. So that compounds and moves it past the... the uh, Howard Downer era, it moves it close to our times. We, we compounded this. Lawyers talk about conspiracy being an ongoing offence, so every attempt to hide a conspiracy, everything that compounds it is part of the original conspiracy. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue at large for our people, our country. It's not just whether Witness K and I go to jail. The, the issue really at large is whether we're going to redeem ourselves, Steve. I mean, that's that's all of what I think I can say. Steve, have you got any other questions that you would like to uh, ask our lovely Bernard? Um, I'd, I'd like to ask Bernard. Um, also, you had a significant revelation there about um, intelligence that Australia had received on the Indonesian invasion in 1975 and the fact that the journalists were targeted. For the first time ever, you, you got some material that was redacted in Australia, but a parent in the UK who kept duplicate copies. You might, I'm just interested in your comment on that uh, too, Bernard. Uh, well, the, there was a coronial inquiry in the end into the death of the newsman uh, in Sydney, and there was an inquiry done by uh, someone I knew, knew quite well, Bill Blick, uh, who was then Inspector General of Intelligence Security, and the core finding was uh, these almost specific words that the Australian government had no warning uh, from the Indonesians or no warning at large that any harm could fall to the news crew, had no, no information. Now, I'm satisfied that Bill Blick got honest answers from our signals people. I won't go into it in detail, but the, the, the signals people said they intercepted nothing that gave them any warning. I accept that. But what I was sickened to read was that um, uh, the British ambassador in Jakarta had been informally and very secretly briefed by the Australian mission, so therefore not, this is not a signal source, uh, uh, by the Australian mission that uh, the head of the Indonesian Intelligence Service had been instructed by 
the Indonesian presence, uh, Sahato, that um, uh, no one was to find out about the clandestine Special Force Indonesian operation in Timor, and that the plane load of journalists arriving was a hurdle, quote, to be overcome. Now, a hurdle to be overcome doesn't mean uh, a lot to us, uh, but in that era in Indonesia, a hurdle to be overcome stated by a murderous group uh, means nothing else but what it led to. And that's pretty sickening um, for that information to have been shared very secretly with the British and not to be shared with other Australian diplomatic missions, which is highly significant, not to be repeated back to Australia. So it came from a very confidential source in the Australian mission in Jakarta. Um, that information should have got to the coroner and, and it's a matter for the relatives and all of our dear friends, Shirley Shackleton and others, to decide whether they want to reopen that inquest. Well, we've got some actually questions from other people that are here tonight. Uh, so one of them is asking, what can ordinary Australians do that are outraged about this? What is the best means? What's the, the most significant thing that we could do to help this whole entire mess? Bernard, you want to comment? Uh, Christine, uh, I'm... Um, I'm before the court indicted for trial and I have to observe the niceties of right. her to try and influence a judge or a jury. Um, I might be in peril, but I, I'm a believer in the rule of law and I'm conservative on our values and I'm not going to sing for my supper or try and better my position um, publicly. I I think that there should have been adequate safeguards in all that terrorist legislation to make sure and to ensure it couldn't be used on us. The irony is the only person the full force of those laws has been used on is me. Mm -hmm. Can't go into my own background, but there's a sickening, sickening irony in that which must give the sadists among those supporting the prosecution of myself, a bit of pleasure. In fact, Julian Burnside asks here tonight, do you agree that it would have been better if Downer and Howard had been prosecuted rather than, uh, <laughs> rather than you? Well, 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 I think uh, well look, uh, uh, I, I tell the absolute truth on my mo dear mother's grave. The, within minutes of Kay walking out of my office, I reached into my bookcase for my presentation copy of the review of Commonwealth law that I'd participated in as Attorney-General of the ACT years before, the specific issues that this wonderful Attorney-General Officer Andrew Menzies and I and others worked on um, was preserving the common law in striking down conspiracy to defraud with an extraterritorial operation. We, I, there's no irony in this, is I had a hand in preserving a common law offence that I believe has been, is a matter that should be looked at, should have been looked at immediately. So as soon as I gave a public lecture in 2015 on some of the matters, now I couldn't now put in my book after the summons was issued, but there's a public lecture on the record at the Australian National University that the Bar Council and Law Society invited me to give. That should have triggered in any working democracy 
I'm not sure how many there are at the moment, mind you, Steve, but in any working democracy, that should have triggered a police investigation. That's the best I can say about Mrs Howard and Downs. And and I might comment on that too. I think um, in particular Alexander Downer, um, there is certainly um, Julian some significant conflicts. The, um, when one of the reasons, I mean, Bernard can't say this, but one of the reasons that uh, Witness K was so, in, um, was so angry and despondent when um, Alexander Downer left office was that Alexander Downer, who was the, uh, the Foreign Minister at the time signing the um, the agreement for the bugging to occur. When he left office, he went to a company called Bespoke. His first client, the very first and significant client he had was Woodside, who were the very beneficiary of the uh, Sunrise Field if Australia got the preferred uh, position and not a median line. So there is significant conflict there, and um, Bernard can't comment on this, but if there was any opportunity, if the case does proceed for him to get in the dock, that would be quite useful to get that cross-examination undertaken. One thing I've got to say and I really want to say is that I've got this wonderful pro bono firm of Gilbert and Tobin acting for me in Sydney, led by Chris Flynn, a wonderful man, and uh, we've issued subpoenas on Woodside. Um, uh, I'll go so far as saying that Woodside have responded to the subpoena by asking what my assets are because they estimate their costs at this stage as $100,000 to $150,000 to respond to the subpoena. Of course, I don't have that money. And don't get me wrong by mentioning I just want you to know that there's a formidable struggle for justice going on, being managed by a wonderful law firm who who wouldn't be having it easy at the moment, I imagine, uh, with the current... uh, issues and I'm so grateful to them and I, I just uh, I, I, I am endlessly uh, appreciative of my profession and uh, people like uh, Julian who asked a question a moment ago and others. Certainly there's people here already asking how we can donate to your defence Bernard. I'm never going to, that's never going to happen for me. There is, um, Christine, I, could, I should say that online yeah. Tom Clark is online. Tom heads up the Timor Justice campaign and probably um, Tom would be the best conduit for any support that people want to, might want to give. I any... think there are a lot of people saying to me that they do want to give support. I'm just going to find Tom and unmute him. I think Tom's still here, isn't he, Tom? Uh, I can't quite see him now. Has he gone? Oh, my God. I mean, look, honestly, it's been a technical nightmare. Tom, Tom, Christine, Tom's an indefatigable worker for Timor and Justice. He's fantastic, yeah. He's a wonderful man. But uh, I'm just a little bit put off about these um, funding uh, campaigns and and I I think the sort of people who are supporting me are probably the least well-heeled of, you know, I, I... I think the police should do their job and I shouldn't be the only one facing a hearing. There's a lovely message here for you saying, um, as a Balibo relative, I've lost faith in most of our own country's legal and political elites and the continuing conspiracy of the Balibo cover-up. My sense is our next step is The Hague and an international tribunal. Australia is already nil one there. Would Steve or Bernard agree? And this is from John Milkins, who's the son of Gary Cunningham. Yep. 
Well, Steve no, and I um, that family, of course. Um, yes. Steve, you better feel that one. Uh, well, obviously a proceeding was taken at The Hague uh, previously um, and it was used by the Terminal Estate Governor as a bargaining chip to get the, the medium line or the, the drawing of the equidistant line um, in the sunrise field between Australia and Timor, so they got some economic justice out of that. Um, I'm, I think they have now relinquished their rights to proceed on that basis, but um, uh, undertaken. Uh, Christine, um, you broke up a little bit there, didn't yeah, you? He broke yeah, broke up. Yeah. Did you want to add something to that? No, no. Oh, sorry, the internet. Yeah. Okay. Steve was right. Um, but uh, I, I think if if um, Milkins is if he's referring to the International Criminal Court, there's some issues there. That if it's the ICC at the Hague. There are there are some issues there, but the the more obvious course I think is um, reopening of the inquest in New South Wales. But I I know how the families feel about retraversing that. Yeah, of course. You know, um, we we I mentioned somewhere that we we have. Uh, tried to acknowledge what we did to the first Australians. We've tried to do that. We've got a similar challenge for what we've done to the Timorese over the last 50, 60 years, yeah. which is, are we going to acknowledge anything? And, and apologising to the families of the Valley Bow Five uh, or, or, and David East uh, and, the, and the one, uh, Roger Eastman. Oh, Roger Eastman. Yeah, um, is part of that process. It, it really just calls for national leadership and it calls for uh, people with the guts to uh, deal with what's in their midst. It, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to face ourselves in this, over this issue. It's not going to go away putting me in jail or, or Kay in jail or, or putting Kay through what Kay is going through at the moment. I mean, what Kay's going through is straight out of Solzhenitsyn's books on the Soviet Union. I mean, he's it's wordless, unidentified, unknown, uh, and should be. And and uh, he's uh, being prosecuted for reporting unlawful conduct. I think someone recently put it as it's a crime to report a crime now in this country. <laughs> so we've got time for one more question and, and perhaps this is something that both of you could answer. I mean, and this is, comes from someone called Peter Jolt. He's saying, should we campaign for this parliamentary apology? And if so, what would be the best means of doing it? How can we do this? How can we support you if it's not in a GoFund way or if it's not uh, making as much fuss as we can? What can we do to get this happening? Uh Steve, we'll, uh, we'll go to you first and then to you, Bernard. I think that's probably a, um, a sensible proposal. Um, and uh, I think we just have to lobby very hard, both um, the government and opposition, to try and get that up as an agenda. Uh, an example of what can be done is that we got policy 
changed one stage by chain proposition negotiated settlement on a median line between Australia and Timor. And once we got that for one of the major parties, the other party came on board and changed their advisory position. So I think we've got to just strongly lobby both sides of government on this matter and try and get those matters up to get a, a better, more just position in place. And apology would be one part of it. But there's other sort of real economic issues which are identified in Bernard's book, which also should be addressed as well, the, the reparations. You know, this, there's billions and billions of dollars which Australia has taken, but they've now recognised is not their money. That wasn't part of their territory. What wasn't part of Australia's territory? And yet that money has been pocketed by Australia. And there's got to be some justice on that to look at some reparation of that over time. And that's part of it too, I think, not just an apology, but significant economic reparation too. Bernard, final word? Oh, well, uh, you know, uh, Woodside's a public company. There are shareholders in Woodside who are good people, good Australians. I know many of the shareholders are foreign, but um, they want hundreds or more, hundred or more, thousand to respond to a simple subpoena when I, as I struggle for justice. I mean, why should my law firm bear that burden? Uh, I can't uh, bear that burden. Uh, what are the shareholders, what do the shareholders of Woodside think about this? And to what extent are public corporate entities like that good citizens uh, when they've been involved in this process? Professor Andrew Surdy told the parliament recently underprivileged when he was advising at Foreign Affairs, Woodside was given the documents for treaty negotiations to, to consult on, to consider. That was the evidence he gave several weeks ago. I mean, this is a company that has now written to my lawyers warning, wanting to know what my personal assets are because um, they want this money to research their records and respond to the subpoena. I mean... It's such a complex issue, but it all goes back to morality and decency, in my view. Uh, your words make me quite sort of speechless, really. Uh, I think I speak for everyone here tonight when I say thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Christine. Just, just thank you very much. Uh, again, it's such a pleasure to have you here on this crazy little landscape that with the, you know, platform, Zoom. Uh, to you, Steve Brax, thank you. Thank you for being quite an astonishing leader. Uh, I know that, that you are missed <laughs> uh, and uh, it's been such a pleasure to join you tonight for this crazy, crazy talk. Uh, please know that on behalf of Melbourne University Publishing House, on behalf of Readings, thank you so much for navigating any kind of tech difficulties that you might have had tonight. Know that Bernard's book, Oil Over Troubled Water, is available online at the Readings shop. You can order it online and if you put in Readings events, then you get 10, you get a discount. It's a read that is necessary. It's important, part of our history. And again... Can all of us collectively shake our hands and say thank you so, so much? Christine, thank you to Rick. Thank you. You guys are the best, just the best. 
You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.